Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the reward-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, before we get started this week, just a quick PSA. We are in the midst of the 20th anniversary celebrations for Hot Flush Recordings, which is the label I started 20 years ago, hence the 20th anniversary. This Friday, the second in the series of DJ mixes that I've recorded for the purposes of this will be released. It's called Post What Step. The musically educated amongst you will probably sniff out the fact that that's relating to the post-dubstep genre, which was briefly very popular. It was a very fun period of running the label, actually. So I'm thinking sort of between 2009, 2008, 2009, and maybe 2012, that kind of like four or five year period. Yeah, lots of good music was released around then. It was extremely gratifying and enjoyable period to be releasing music and making music so yeah that mix comes out on friday it features a couple of new tracks as well as the classic stuff from that era and the new tracks are one by me which came out as a single last friday it's called in your dreams and a collab that i've done with nikki nair called expression which is also released as a single on the same day i.e this friday i will be posting links to that on friday via my socials and if you're curious or if you want a bit of a trip down a nostalgia path for that period, and as I said, it was a great period, then yeah, that will be up your street. Post what step, coming on Friday on Hot Flush Recordings. Okay, this week on the show, we have a bit of a departure from recent episodes. Like One of the most enjoyable things about doing this podcast for me has been taking the opportunity to talk to people who don't normally do interviews or certainly don't do interviews in the sense that you know you do when you're selling a record as an artist 
which is to say talking to people from different parts of the industry and people who have different experiences doing different things as opposed to just doing the typical artist thing typical dj producer thing as we do in electronic music so this week on the show we have phil palermo who is the co-founder and director of untitled group which is the largest independently owned music events company in australia so they do a whole bunch of different festivals including beyond the valley pitch wildlands ability fests and various other things too they've been going for over 10 years and considering the fact that they're the biggest independent of that sort in Australia, they're obviously doing something right. So this was a great opportunity to dig into Australia generally as a kind of music market and the live sector in Australia specifically, but also dig into how you run a festival and how that whole side of the business comes together. There are obviously lots of commonalities between running those sorts of events anywhere in the world. So there is a lot of Australia-specific stuff in this week's episode, but also a lot of stuff which is just typical to everything in that part of the live space. So yeah, Phil Palermo is a great person to talk to about all this stuff, and we get into some really interesting business in the course of this week's conversation. So if you want to support the show, you can do so on Patreon, patreon.com slash official. One thing you may be interested in, actually, as a potential patron, is the fact that we have launched a kind of remix project, a rolling remix project, which is going to kind of re-up every month. I've posted a bunch of stems on the Discord. You can get into the Discord via wholefashionedrecordings.com slash Discord. But there is a private Patreon area which houses the remix project in question. I've posted a bunch of stems, so you get a bunch of free stems, and users are invited to do a remix using them and then post the results, which we will be picking apart in an extremely constructive kind of a way. I mean, I'm not sure if I've sold this particularly well, but I mean, you get other stuff as well <laughs> as that as a patron. So it's bonus podcasts and on the musicality tier, which is the higher tier, you get all the stuff that comes out on Hot Project Recordings for free as part of your subscription. And yeah, it's just pretty good generally. And if you want to support what we're doing here, then that's the best way to do it. But if you don't want to do that, that's also cool. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that. And join us in the aforementioned Discord server, which I've already plugged, but hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord is the place to do that. So without further delay, here is Phil Palomo. Bill Palermo, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? Good, thanks. How are you doing, Paul? Yeah, I'm good. I've just, uh, just got out of bed, actually, so I'm <laughs> trying to gather my sense of consciousness to <laughs> try and do this in a coherent kind of a way. I'm very well. So we were just talking off mic about where you are. You're in Melbourne, right? Yeah, in Melbourne. So I'm actually just getting ready for bed. This is uh, my last phone call for the day. Um, but <laughs> right, okay. the, um, yeah, live in Melbourne... Born and raised, always always been here, um, always worked here as well. Worked from Melbourne at least, so yeah. Mm. Okay, so I wanted to kick off by just getting a bit of a bird's eye view from you about the overall sort of live music situation in Australia right now because as a country, I think you guys are a few months behind Europe and, and America with regards to coming out of the restrictions. So to what extent have you guys looked at the experience, I suppose, of those other territories in regards to how you've been planning and your own experience of how things have gone since reopening? Yeah. Um, 
it was a bit of uh, there was a bit of uncertainty as to whether we were going to be the first ones to come out of it or or the last ones, um, just because the especially in Melbourne the lockdown laws were very strict compared to the rest of the world. But it was yeah, we did end up coming out third out of the ranks um, out of like three big territories, and um, it was it was actually quite helpful looking on just kind of watching from afar online and speaking to a lot of booking agents, artists and promoters that we work with who are based in Europe, especially, um, and North America to speak on their public health frameworks for their event permits and everything. Um, we learned a lot before we were physically on the ground, um, running events again, which was really helpful, but, um, it's normalized now to the point where those few months where we were catching up, um, it's pretty much, you don't feel it. You don't feel like we're behind anymore in terms of where the market is um, or kind of getting back into it. Now everyone's kind of, you know, well into it and um, all systems go. It's um, It doesn't feel like we had like a two or three month buffer or whatever it ended up being uh, between before after territories like Europe ended up getting back into things. So, yeah. Okay, and have there been any sort of noticeable changes in the, I guess, the activity of the audience and the audience, um, I guess, their expectations of what an event that they might want to go to would be? The changes, uh, the changes are more just hesitation around the artists that we were announcing whether they'd actually come. I mean, especially the big ones on New Year's Eve just past. We had everyone from Bicep to Honey Dijon to. Uh, um, you know, Yob Yob's palm tracks all the way to um, R&B, um, you know, pop superstars like Nelly Furtado coming out and hip-hop artists like Denzel Curry. And we had a lot of artists, um, you know, they, they were coming out, we were either touring them or they were um, playing at our festivals um, through a third-party agent or direct through an agency based in Europe or North America. And I guess there was a lot of hesitation from people as to whether the they were already coming and that wasn't as a direct result from COVID. I guess the aftermath of COVID flights being so expensive, a lot of artist cancellations directly after the pandemic started to simmer here or the, the, the laws around the pandemic started to simmer. That, that, that was the big one. People just being uncertain. We were in quite a lucky um, situation where everyone we booked rocked up in terms of the, um, with the headliners that we were booking for our festival. So Outside of that, it's been very similar over there. I mean, everyone everyone came out of the gates very hungry. The market was just ready to go. Everything was selling out. We were doing – we had headliners that would traditionally sell out 1,000 tickets. I was selling 5,000 tickets for, you know, small day festivals. And then festivals like, you know, Pitch, for instance, would usually sell out before the event um, every year. But – we sold out in like one minute for the 2022 edition. So there was a lot that happened in terms of, you know, that big rush moment. And then on the other side of that, we experienced what happened in Europe last summer, which was it slowed down uh, and people just bought very, very late. Um, there was a festival that we run on New Year's Day with um, some other local promoters here called Sun Cycle and we sold about we sold we ended up selling out the event and thirty five percent of those sales came in the last twenty four hours, which was absolutely insane. Um and 
very frustrating as well when you're trying to organize infrastructure and staff for that many people on such a short timeline. So, yeah. So, I mean, what did you put that down to? I and mean, obviously there's a commonality of experience there and there must have been commonality of causes as well, right? So, like, as you said, there was a, a big reaction to restrictions being lifted and, you know, a kind of frenzy of ticket buying. And then this drop, I mean, was that just because people spent all their money or was there something mm, a little bit more, I don't know, psychological perhaps that explain that? I think both. I think that, yeah, disposal income was scarce after after people had just spent so much on, because it's not just the tickets, it's the cost of attending these festivals and everything that comes with that. But also the, I think they just got support for choice in such a short window. There was so many options. And then on the other side of that, it was all of those options were still there and then markets started to be so oversaturated that you know these kids were still spoiled for choice but they didn't they weren't buying to everything that was available so it put everyone in this position where it was almost like you know for promoters um, you know we kind of felt like promoters and venues we felt like it was the the golden era it was just like you could just announce pretty much anything and it would sell out instantly or before the event and then that golden era or the um almost like the um yeah the the after effect of it which is you know so much market confidence and then in turn so much confidence with promoters and venues to just keep going um resulted in a yeah oversupply and um a reduction in demand where we stayed at this level where there were just so many events on offer and, um, you know, the appetite had, would, had quickly quickly simmered. So, yeah. Were there a lot of new entrants to the market in terms of like new promoters and, you know, younger people was thinking that they could get involved in this thing, which was obviously like a hot market for a short period of time. I mean, that was the, that's the kind of anecdotal evidence that I've heard from, certainly from Europe, is that there are a lot of new entrants of people, new people putting on parties and putting on festivals. Mm. I mean... On the with us because our background is uh, very much so the bulk of our work is in the live concert space and we are Australia's largest independent promoter when it comes to to um, revenue and hard tickets. It is it's interesting. We get kind of both sides. We get to we get good optics on the new independents that are coming through and running parties, and then a lot of the internationals that are coming through and looking to enter um, the acquisition model or partner model with with independent promoters. But I feel like it's that that has been more prevalent over the last few years. A lot of the independents that are running shows now were running shows pre-pandemic. I think the presence of the larger companies like um, your Live Nations, TEGs, AEGs and stuff has, has definitely increased on the other side. I think, yeah, that's definitely been, I've noticed that quite a lot more in terms of um, the the appetite for risk here in Australasia and um, specifically in Australia and New Zealand, as well as a lot of the festivals that they are partnering with at the moment here, or even starting new festival properties in this market and touring, Um, especially, yeah, a lot of the touring in the hard ticket space, that has gone up significantly. But in terms of the new other new like new promoters, they're technically new promoters entering the scene to, to some, um, but in terms of your more young up-and-coming promoters, 
there hasn't been too many who were already doing smaller parties in 2019 um, outside of a couple. You know, that, that wasn't a big that wasn't a big movement here, I don't think. There was a lot of artists who were running their own events rather than working with promoters because they didn't really need promoters in that golden era that I referred to before. They could kind of hold on to all that income, which was really exciting for a lot of artists, especially off the back of not not receiving any income for a long time. It was probably necessary that they, they got that extra, you know, 20% or um, whatever it ended up being. So, yeah, it was a an intru- it was an interesting moment, but um, I yeah, not too many new up and comers did did we notice? Okay, I think it would be useful for you to just describe a little bit about uh, sort of in general terms how the market works over in Australia. I mean, assuming a fairly a fairly high level of ignorance amongst our audience here, um, <laughs> in my experience, the way it works in Australia is a bit different to to certainly to Europe, and, and I think has some distinct features versus the US market too. So let's look at sort of electronic music specifically here both in terms of clubs, like larger events, and then going to larger festivals. Can you just give us an overview of how it tends to work in Australia? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the first and most obvious thing is we all um, catch kangaroos to work every day, which is... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's how we first we, we get to work and then... No, no, no. But the, 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 it, is, it is very, very foreign to people, um, especially in Europe when, when they are described, when this gets described to them. It's... it's a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, the biggest difference here between what um, people experience in Europe is the sub-agent system, which is a third-party agent that works with an artist from, I guess, the infancy of their career, fostering them in this territory for the one to two times a year or once a, every two years that they want to come here, making sure that they start off at a club level, build them up and off-sell them to other clubs and promoters. So what you'll generally see when artists come here is a, a less 10% that that sub-agent will take, but it's a constant area of confliction or um, or debate effectively is, you know, now that the Australian market has become more more obvious or more people have, have educated themselves with how it worked, should the sub-agent still be involved? You know, a lot of people say yes because they were there from the start. They helped them understand this territory, which was very confusing during a time where agents were busy trying to build their agents and managers were trying to build their artists in in Europe and UK and stuff and also trying to create the some cohesion between the global strategies with especially North and South America because, you know, as you traditionally see in the electronic space, those would be the areas that they dominate, especially in more recent times. North America has started to to really pick up, you know, EDM was always massive there, but now you you see a lot more of the underground electronic and house and techno artists are starting to get a lot more love. So it's um, for us, it's always, you know, in 2017, 2018, that the electronic space used to be dominated. I'd say even before that, actually more or less 2015, there were some festivals before 2015, like uh, Stereosonic and Future Music Festival that would dominate the space. And they'd, they'd, they'd just have everyone from Skrillex to Swedish House Mafia to Alesso. And then on the side stages that would fit traditionally about two to 500 people, you would have Nina Kravitz, um, artists like Cops in 82 or Green Velvet. Yeah, I, mean, I, I played those festivals a few go. times. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> or yourself and, and um, 
slowly happened over time is that became equally as popular as the EDM space. So that was a big movement. Those festivals um, stopped stopped operating um, eventually, and um, it was kind of the rise of the boutique festivals, and along with that, boutique bars and more unique parties in unique locations and stuff, and there was a real big appetite for that in Australia. So you've kind of got this sub-agency system model which people had no choice but to use for quite some time. And then you've got this whole movement of underground electronic, for lack of a better word, because it's no longer underground anymore, but a lot of these artists um, who, a lot of DJs who were coming to Australia and for us selling on their previous run 500 tickets at a nightclub and we were able to leverage the pairing between um, them um, as a, an artist and their, their brand equity and how many sales they have and pairing it with, an, say, a warehouse which hasn't previously been used in a live space and be able to sell 5,000-plus tickets, you know. Um, we, we were doing that for a bit for artists for like Solomon, Patrick Topping, um, a lot of other uh, sideshows as well as um, our festivals, like our biggest ones mainly being Pitch and Beyond the Valley. Outside of that, you also saw a lot of the major agencies starting to move into the space quite aggressively to push away from the third-party agent system, which a lot of them naturally as agents say it's in their best interest to look out for the artists. So, you know, they are getting an extra 10% of income for their artists when they when they do that. But that enters that kind of, you know, debate that I mentioned earlier about is it better or is it worse for the artists? Are they doing right by the agent that was with them from the start? trying to help them understand this space, should that agent wear the risk of being the promoter instead of just being the third-party agent? Could they be in a space where they promote some of the shows themselves and be good to the rest of the Australian ecosystem and then sell off other shows? Because the other consideration is it's a very, very big country. So in terms of the population density and how it's spread, you'd have Melbourne and Sydney as the two big ticket-selling markets, but then you've also got Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide especially, and then other kind of – you know, secondary markets that promoters and artists would look at like Wollongong or Canberra um, and um, and Hobart and stuff where there would be little extra, you know, if the artist has the time and, um, and space to be able to make small money in small markets and stick around here rather than going straight back to Europe, they would traditionally, traditionally try and make those markets work. But it would be hard to justify that for some artists with the offers that were on the table if they were also paying a sub-agent 10%, whereas the bigger ones who were still working with a sub-agency or a third party would find that third party being a promoter in the major markets like Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and then they would be sold off to the right promoter at the right price for the right time with an agent that really understands markets like Perth, Wollongong, um, Canberra and stuff, which are really, they are really tricky markets to understand um, and nail. They are very, yeah, very different with um, ticket sale expectations and um, just, I guess, what they listen to, um, really. Every, everybody's different. Sure. Okay. So, yeah, you mentioned that this kind of previously quote-unquote underground section of House and Techno has 
yeah, I mean, it's it's crossed over in a big way and not just in Australia, certainly in, in the Americas as well. And, and in Europe, it was always, I guess, I mean, the underground label was always slightly more tenuous there. But to what extent has that stuff been, um, I guess, infiltrated is maybe a slightly incendiary way of putting it. But to what extent has that section of the market been taken over by the large agencies and companies when I mean, you mentioned that you guys are the biggest independent but like you know the, the likes of as you say like live nation and AEG and stuff how dominant are they in this area of the market which used to be seen as being underground um not as dominant as um i think some would like to be at this this stage of their their in, um investment timeline into australia but they're in terms of the in the pop space for instance they're they're yeah you can't really compete with them the artists like um you know, your Jewel Leapers or your Red Hot Chili Peppers and stuff, a lot of those are, you know, that's that's where a big, you know, the big source of their income is coming from in this space. And they are, it is kind of, it does feel like this is the next chapter for a lot of them is stepping into this this music and that this space. And a lot of the people that work at these companies, even knowing they're initially from America or Europe, you know, there are Australians working at these companies, the big promoters coming from overseas when they start their offices here. So, they in turn effectively become Australian companies, Australian promoters, um, even knowing they are effectively subsidiaries of the parent company, which is usually based out of North America. But in the agency front, I would say it's much more prevalent. Um, you know, agencies like WME have a have an office here in Australia now. Um, agencies like Wasserman, there's a lot, lot of um, agents there that – uh, work directly with the artists in Australia and communicate directly with promoters, which can actually be a much more linear process and and easier um, at times. It's all circumstantial. It depends on the artists and the timeline and the space. I would say confidently that in the electronic space, we do we do dominate the market quite a lot in terms of artists that we've you know we've built great working relationships with and will continuously work with on their the tours and creating a succession plan so that they would in turn increase tickets or increase the the festivals and the size of the festivals that they play on every time that we bring them back as well as the just a brand equity and market share that we have in Australia with um you know how many how many festivals and how many um you know across all of our tours and our festivals nationally we're doing roughly just under half a million tickets um, per year um, and that's across, you know, over New Year's Eve alone, we we have about we run about nine festivals across the country, between Melbourne, Sydney, sorry, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, Western Australia, just everywhere, um, everywhere, every you know, from beyond the valley, which is, you know, around the thirty k mark, all the way to your smaller festivals like Sun Cycle, that you know we do under 10,000 for, and that's on New Year's Day. So it's very, very eclectic and very broad now, but we do a lot of electronic in short. And there's a lot of other promoters that are doing a lot in the electronic space. Hardware has traditionally dominated it over the last 20 years. Um, Novel have been really big, big promoters in this space. And then there's, yeah, there's a lot. There's the Strawberry Fields guys that run an amazing festival here out in regional um, it's just on the border of Victoria, New South Wales, but it's in New South Wales, um, as well as the fuzzy, fuzzy guys more in the um, commercial mm-hmm. electronic space and 
a few others. So how many of those half million tickets are driven by international touring artists? I'd say about, well, it depends because a lot of the, the music festivals will have, say, 40% Australian or, yeah, 40%, um, sorry, 40% international artists, say, over the New Year's period for the New Year's run, and then 60% will be internationals. Then there's, like, for pitch, for instance, we do pitch, and then we do sideshows around pitch, and that will traditionally, the sideshows could range anywhere from a 1,000-person club to a 10,000-person um, sideshow or day party. And that is, for pitch, for instance, it's about 85% internationals, 15% Australians. So when you take that into account, plus what we do in the hard ticket space, what we do for tours, club shows, um, one-off events throughout the year, we even have um, a winter series of shows that we do in warehouses and nightclubs and stuff. Um, primarily in Victoria, I would say it's, it's, it used to be about 80% domestic, 20% international. When we're first starting, starting out, I would, I would probably call it straight down the line 50, 50, but there's probably someone who works with me at my company that would have a a stat which yeah, yeah. would either sure. go directly against that or agree with it um it's just hard to yeah know off the top of my head at the moment to be honest yeah okay i just wanted to get a sort of general idea about you know, the extent to which internationals dominate to a greater or lesser extent in the market like placing it in the context of you know, com- comparing europe and comparing north america primarily and I'm, I'm thinking yeah primarily also about the quote-unquote underground house and techno side of things but I, I guess i also include in that sort of bass music and that sort of thing too so let me ask you then about the development of untitled group i mean what was the first big event that you guys did what was the first sort of like breakthrough festival for you as a organization uh the, the first breakthrough event we did was definitely beyond the valley in 2014, which was our first was our first festival. But before then, it was all club nights, um, which is where we started off. I mean, I started off DJing when I was 16 years old using a fake ID that my best friend Michael, who's now one of my business partners, made for me. Um, and then we partnered with our other business partners between okay let me let me let me pull you let me pull you up there hang on a yeah. sec <laughs> that, that's <laughs> worth a bit more in, in investigation the fake so ID. You're, you're from melbourne originally <laughs> yeah yeah right 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 yeah you're yeah, from, melbourne, from originally. melbourne yeah so tell me about raving under as an underage person in uh, melbourne I'll go, I'll go as early as i can remember i remember um when i was uh yeah when i was a kid i used to play a lot of guitar and drums and some piano and then i grew a lot more in the guitar space I guess started uh, started playing for my high school and was really in love with rock and roll. And then one day my mum comes into my room with a, a CD with two robots on the front of it and says homework and all of a sudden I, I plug it in and, yeah, it was, you know, homework by Daft Punk and I was um, was blown away, wanted to get into electronic music, started DJing after DJing for a bit at house parties and stuff. I was about 15, 16. Um, and my best friend Michael Christides, um, who you um, – yeah, as one of our business partners, he was he was making fake IDs at high school and selling them off at twenty bucks a pop. Um, if you were if you were friends with him and you were in the inner, oh, that inner is a circle, good business. Yeah, it was a great business. <laughs> business was a booming for Michael back then. So he was, um, yeah, he was flogging off fake IDs for twenty dollars each. But you had to be friends with him, you know. You he he would have got snitched out if word got out and the wrong person came to him and 
all of a sudden you get the high school involved. <laughs> but we were just kids and I, I started DJing. He started coming to these parties with me and he was very quickly, he kind of turns to me, he's like, you know what these guys are doing who are paying you, you know, $50 an hour to DJ. We can just do it ourselves. Um, and then we kind of sat down and we went to a local pub, which was uh, very well known for running parties on like Thursday nights and stuff to the northern community of Melbourne. It was called the Royal, well, it's still around. It's called the Royal Derby Hotel. And we started running, started running parties there, got way out of control, too many people. I was redlining just, you know, um, <laughs> like there was no tomorrow. Um, we, the whole thing was um, really shooting at the hip, just cowboys kind of stuff. But we, we were still underage at that point and the guy that owned the venue still didn't know when we were 17. So we got to 18, we're like, all right, we want to do this as a full-time job. We both got accepted into our respective university degrees. I don't know how. Michael's was much more impressive. It was medicine at Melbourne University, which um, right, okay. how he got yeah. into that while he was – selling fake ideas <laughs> and running club nights as a 17 year old we still don't know so um <laughs> but then we started running um night yeah there were club nights at theaters like well at a specific theater called the palace theater and we were doing we were turning over about two to three thousand people per week every saturday night and then we started to book and what kind of what kind of show was what kind of show was that so, so what was the music and who were you booking we were booking this was before they were big a lot of it the popularity of the club night was built off of um a bit of like a host and promoter structure tier system so we would go to friends and friends of friends we're only 18 at this point and we're working with our other business partners at this stage as well who were of a similar age and we um, were looking at the, um, yeah, we were just kind of, it was a bit of a divide and conquer in terms of, all right, you've got some mates who live in this suburb, mates who go to this school, mates who play at this football club, get them to sell tickets, get them to bring their mates, and then they would get paid 3 to $5 per person that they bring. Before you know it, we've got 3,000 people rocking up every Saturday and then booking agents locally start hitting us up um, from Thicker Steve's, um, who I should have mentioned before is probably one of the biggest um, impacts in electronic in Australia as well. Um, Mike Toner and his team over there, but the, you know, we did a lot of work with them at the start where Mike fostered artists like Patrick Topping and Clapton and stuff. Clapton would play in the club. Um, Dom Dollar would play in the club who Mike and I were really close with and have always been close friends with him and his manager, James. And, then a lot of, um, you know, artists like big Australian artists like Peking Duck and Parachute Youth. We The biggest night that we had there was booking digitalism back when they were um, releasing a lot of music and stuff. And um, off the back of that, we kind of built up the capital and relationships with artist agents and managers through doing these odd headliner nights to start our own music festival. And we, we rolled the dice on it. Okay, hang on, hang on a sec, hang on a sec, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. <laughs> yeah. what, what year? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're jumping a little bit ahead here. Okay. What year were we talking about when you guys were starting that party, which initially got success? What year was that? So that would have been in 2013, and that went for a year of being really – it was Australia's most popular club night, built off of the foundation of wow, that whole really? promoter okay. system. There was no other weekly club night that would, was doing those kinds of numbers. Um, and before that, we had run smaller clubs. So, you know, we – 
kind of um, met up with this guy who, um, yeah, our uh, business partner, Nick Greco, who I was DJing for uh, back when I was 16. And we said, hey, we want to work together. We want to start running these parties with you. Then um, we found this other guy, Christian Soreo, another business partner of ours who was working um, on events more on the south side of the city, except he was from the north side of the city. So we were like, this guy can really bring some some numbers to the table for us. He kind of um, it was it was quite literally a game of just like who knows the most people that can bring down more people. So we ran a club night called Treehouse initially, and then that um, that was kind of where we. Uh, started to meet and work together but you fast forward to 2014 which is after running that theater nightclub that i mentioned and the in 2014 was when we started beyond the valley and our first year the lineup was rufus kate renata um just before rufus were like the biggest artists in the world <laughs> um and um who else played Clapton, Thomas Jack? Okay, okay, but hang on a sec though. Let, let me let me ask you: How much experience was there in the team of running a, a larger event like that? We knew how to sell tickets. We knew how to book artists. We knew how to do just general brand identity and marketing strategy. That was it. It was, it was the it was blind courage that kind of got us through the first year up until when we were running the first event, we knew everything that we didn't like about other festivals in the market at that moment from an, from an experience point of view. And we just thought this would be really cool if we did this show, this party, which changed that and really flipped it on its head and incorporated stage designs, more festival production infrastructure, you know, more lasers, more this, louder, everything that we could think about that added to the experience. Let's get an electronic artist or electronic band, um, hybrid artists like Rufus to do the countdown into the new year um, because Beyond the Valley is a New Year's Eve festival that runs for four days and then it finishes on New Year's Eve. And let's go until late. Let's finish at 3 a.m. in the morning, 4 a.m. in the morning on New Year's Eve. Um, you know, all the things that people love, that costs a lot of money. And it was getting the bill after that first event that we were really – we were like, wow, okay, so all the fun stuff costs money. Um, we need to find a way to to mitigate this and, and not be paying overs for artists and not be, you know, doing all this stuff to – but it was kind of important that we went through that process. A lot of the, um, you know, people that worked with us in that first year that were running, you know, just parts of the festival that would in turn bring us income – or bring us income today, and then they were just taking the full pot uh, back then without telling us. There was a lot that we just we were so green on it. People people were taking advantage, contractors and stakeholders and stuff that worked with us back in 2014, and the ones that weren't taking advantage of us, they're still with us today. But the um the big thing is, I guess, it was uh um. And I'm not suggesting all of them were taking advantage of us, but we did find a few a few moments where people were just like, these kids are 18 years old. Like they have no clue or right operating in the music festival space. The liability and just sheer risk profile on this event, when we only did 6,000 tickets in the first year, was just 
you know, it's remarkable how we even just made it through it. And then year two came and it was, we were staring down the barrel of a massive loss. It was a million dollars. We didn't have the money for it. We had suppliers and none of us really had rich parents. So we had suppliers that were, you know, they were very, I guess, because a lot of them saw the festival firsthand and they saw the reviews that came after the event. And it was like this, this new, I guess, category of festival. Sorry, you mean, let me, let me jump in quickly. You're talking about the reviews of year one there, right? Yeah. So the experience, the reviews of the experience from year one. Okay. Right. And so that's, that's a kind of vindication of your vision, I suppose, for the event, right? Because what you said, what you were saying about how the things you wanted to improve were like the direct experiential sort of production value elements to, to the festival, which, I mean, I, I think those details are just, uh, yeah, they're unbelievably important and it really shines through when a promoter, when the, when the organisers of an event like that take those kind of things really seriously, like that, that kind of attention to detail. Let me just go back to that first event, though. When I was, um, when I was asking about the, the kind of experience of having done those larger events, I was kind of more thinking about the infrastructure and the kind of logistical aspects of doing that you know, large of an event, right? Because that's, that's what always strikes me when I think about, oh, if I was ever going to be involved in the running of that kind of thing, that, mm. that would be what scared me, you know, <laughs> at the outset. I'd just be like thinking about oh, toilets yeah. and stuff like that, you know, that would just freak me the fuck out. So <laughs> That stuff's scary too. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, so presumably a fairly steep learning curve with all that side of it too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, no one really, you know, we had, we had consultants and everything to guide us, thank God, and get us through that first year. But you're right. Yeah. Toilets, fencing, compliance, making sure that the, all this stuff that we know today, what to pay for things like freight, generators, fuel, how to run an emergency command center for, you know, the police, the fire safety officers and everything. Back then, we none of us knew anything about any of this stuff. We're completely reliant on the consultants. <laughs> I'm just nervous talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird being so calm about it now because at the time it was um, we were also quite calm about it because we had no idea what we were doing wrong. There was just someone else. <laughs> right, on, does that help? Yeah, <laughs> there was no auditing process. There was no checks and balances. We weren't systematic at all back then. It was quite literally just a few friends running a party that was too big for them to comprehend what they required from an infrastructure and compliance standpoint. The festival just kind of happened and it just, it worked out because the music and the production elements were so good. And then all these people wanted to buy tickets again, which if it wasn't for that, then I would probably be living, I don't know, in Mexico or something and have just completely <laughs> fled the country. Who knows? Um, but um, sure. we got through it. And then um, that was, that, to answer your question, that was that was the first major event. And then um, it was year two where I remember Beyond the Valley, which was still our only, the only thing we're focusing on. We we did a bunch of tours and things in the interim, but we had to ask a lot of suppliers back in 2014 to, to hold out on us running the second event to get paid for that, what they were owed for the first one, which was very daunting, especially for a 19 year old at that time who had no idea. We, we didn't know whether we were going to make it back or not. And we didn't understand a lot of the economics around it. And there was no short course on how to bounce back from losing a lot of money on a music festival that was available at that time. But we just, we knew what our guts told us and we knew our music really well. 
And it was that year that we confirmed. I remember it was Jamie XX off the back of him releasing in color Skepta as he was really starting to blow up. And um, artists like the Rubens who were about to win the Triple J Hottest 100, Fly Facilities who um, just off the back of their album Down to Earth, which was still is one of the most popular um, albums of um, this generation for especially for Australians. But it was, yeah, we went on sale and we sold out straight away. All debts were paid and we had a bit left over after to go on and start Pitch Festival. And, um, yeah, I just remember. So hang on a sec. So does that mean you, you sold out well in advance of, of show day on for that second year? Yes, well in advance, yeah. And how many tickets was that? That was 16,000. So we've gone from... I think it was six or seven thousand in the first year, and then we did an extra ten thousand tickets on top of that. Was that a different venue? Different venue, yeah. So we moved from um, from Phillip Island to Lardner Park. The um, and it was a big learning curve. The second year festival, from an experience standpoint, was nowhere near as good because you know we were still trying to get our experience on how to run this event, and we we got I think it was four days of forty degrees Celsius in a row. It was bad. It was it was just. It was hot. We didn't have enough shade. You know, there was a whole bunch of infrastructure items and resourcing that we were, uh, you know, we just, we weren't investing in that. We we weren't aware that we needed to invest in, but that was um, that was a big learning curve because it was like, you can't go all, all out on the lineup and then not spend on these other items, but still spend on production and stage design and stuff. It was about finding that balance and also educating ourselves on where we were getting ripped off and how to better better spend our money and be more strategic with taking materials and everything that you'd bought for a stage design one year, storing it on site, repurposing it the following year, repainting it, whatever it is, make it look different. But really it's the same, it's the same plywood or acrylic or uh, whatever material it was that we were using, starting to be more strategic with our lineups rather than just being too heavy on you know, counter offering against our competitors because we had to have the artists that we liked, spending less on the lineup, spending a little bit less on other areas and just really tightening the the screws on what has slowly turned into a, a business model for each event where everything is um, everything kind of moves in margins and increments and as we unlock X amount of sales, we spend more in certain departments and we've bought a lot of infrastructure, a lot of lights, a lot of materials, a lot of shipping containers. I think the amount of shipping containers we purchase over the years, I actually don't know how many shipping containers we own. I just know it's a lot. But the um, we uh, just a lot of that stuff you you know, you buy it once or even capital works on the sites like Beyond the Valley and stuff. Uh, you spend it once and then for us it was always a long play. And I think that came along with being so young and being so motivated and driven and starting to learn more about our festivals ourselves, you know, all of us as not just the partners of the company, but our employees took the initiative to go out and um, meet with agents direct overseas, meet with these suppliers firsthand, stand there with the, the owner of the toilet company and just be like, how many toilets do we need and how much does it cost per toilet and where do you put the toilets <laughs> and how do the toilets work? All the way down to just like, you know, media publications um, for our 
our head of PR and her team um, now that they just they speak to direct instead of us going through a third party and paying a third party. Our marketing team talking direct with Facebook, Instagram, um, and our reps there, um, as well as speaking direct to artist teams on how we can further leverage their ticket sales in this market. But there was so much investment into internalizing everything and buying a lot of infrastructure and learning exactly how to run a music festival or a concert or even just you know, um, especially a camping music festival, which has always been the most complicated. The most complicated property that operates within our, within our ecosystem is really running beyond the valley and pitch. There's just there's so much that go into those festivals. It's it's insane. And when I look back on how much knowledge we had in 2014 compared to now, it's just I could confidently look at our whole team and and just say we you know confidently say that we're professionals at this, which is exciting, you know? Well, that's progress anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's so better than you, <laughs> 2014, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, right. So you you were saying that you started Pitch off the back of that second year of Beyond the Valley. So what was the difference in the approach for that festival? I mean, like, was it primarily a a music policy difference or like what was the what was the distinction there there was there was a lot that was different about pitch i mean we really wanted to do something which was strictly in the electronic space but similar to beyond the valley when you look at the event blueprint so you know four days of entertainment as well as um late nights uh, but nothing too crazy there's i think there's yeah there's other festivals that you know do the whole 24 hour thing that that was quite concerning for us to when it was brought into the fold of discussion. Um, and I'm happy it's not something that we do. But the, you know, there's there's anything wrong if you've got a good management plan to actually run those 24 hour music festivals, and they're they're safe, you know. But um, it was a, just something that we weren't particularly interested in. But for pitch, we also worked with. Um, so, uh, another promoter um, novel who um, is no longer involved with pitch, but there was also an exciting uh, moment of, um, I guess, us coming together on a festival where we had traditionally competed in that space. And I guess the most exciting part of it is definitely the location. The Grampian Mountains, the National Park in Victoria, we were lucky enough to find a site which is on the foothills of that. So you get to the site, it's kind of this really um, euphoric moment of seeing that mountain in the backdrop, but our festival site is completely flat. And there's these trees that are hundreds of years old on, on um, the pitch site that just tower over you. Um, it really is like nothing I've seen in Australia or globally. Every Every event site is so unique and beautiful and different in itself. I remember going to Melt Festival a long time ago and I was just the whole juxtaposition between the um, the mechanical elements and the, the industrial elements of the site with the natural elements and, you know, the stages that are water sites. Yeah, you're stuff. talking about Melt in Germany, right? In Germany, yeah. yeah. And um, even going to the more inner city festival locations like attending Coachella, attending Deckmantle and going to Burning Man, which was a whole different um, experience, you know, that was proper being out in the desert, in the dust. Um, but pitch is really unique where those, I guess, those natural landscapes each are so exciting and wonderful in their own in their own areas. But I, I haven't seen something like pitch where it's a combination of kind of bush, trees, the grass is green most of the time. Sometimes we get a bit 
unlucky some years and then just the Grampian Mountains in the background. And then we, what we do is we pair it with this really beautiful, also a juxtaposition similar to, to melt, but visually we pair it with all this temporary infrastructure which mimics brutalist architecture. And what that does when you have it sitting next to these big old gum trees um, and the mountain in the background, it really does create for such a special event. And then you've got a market like Australia where we traditionally haven't had, you know, festivals that have brought all of those artists into one space for one time of the year, a lineup where you can see Charlotte Witt, Bicep, you know, Mount Kimby Floating Points, Fortet, Dennis Salter, Moderat, like just just pretty much everyone that these kids are listening to on, on SoundCloud or whatever through festivals that they have attended in Europe, um, which is a rite of passage for a lot of Melbournians. They usually... As soon as they finish high school, they go to Berlin for like a week and they come back and they're just like, I love techno. Um, so it's um, it's almost <laughs> like a cliche. Um, but the seeing all those artists, Len Fucky, men, um, Len Fucky, Marcel Detman, Ben Clock, you know, um, just all on one lineup is another thing which made it really unique and special and different, very different to Beyond the Valley. Beyond the Valley has a massive Triple J presence, a massive Australian artist presence. And it was something that we actually got discredited on for pitch in the first year or two was where are the Australian artists? And we listened. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, we listened. And right. I think it just natu- ha- naturally happened because we, we worked so much with Australian artists. And then we did a second release on that year with more Australians. And every year we've, we've always done more and more, but we do like – it wasn't like this big thing or anything where there was a lot of people saying, you know, people out the front of our office – on their kangaroo saying, where's the, where's the Australians? It was, it was um, <laughs> um, just more um, locals, you know, instead of just all internationals. And we do a lot, not just with local artists, but through educating ourselves and listening to the like really great advice of others in the music industry from being 20 year olds back then on our first year of pitch to now, you know, we're getting into our 10th year of beyond the Valley soon. And our, um, I think, we're about to run pitch in just under a month, which is really exciting. Um, but, you know, we're not too far off of um, 10 years of pitch, which will be in a few years' time. So the focusing a lot of our energy and learnings into diversifying our lineups, providing and understanding how important it is to be booking First Nation artists in Australia was something that's become become of a really high value, um, sorry, um, okay, yeah. uh, really um, important in just our overall um, ethos and prioritizing and in, in, in our just internal values, um, working with a lot of First Nation mentoring groups and and training ourselves in, in that space with uh, the right guidance and consultants who have been telling us, you need to do more in this space, you need to do you know, maybe less internationals and stuff like that. So from what started as, hey, you guys should book more locals, we're really confident, we're really exciting to uh, excited to say that we have um, ticked over milestones, like, you know, Beyond the Valley, the one that just passed was 50-50 between males and females on the lineup, um, which was really, really exciting. And, yeah, a lot of, a lot of values which have become – big priorities for us in the programming space yeah let me let me ask you a question about that over the course of the last 10 years the diversity 
issue, particularly on festival lineups, I think. I think this is the kind of bleeding edge of the debate here with regards to diversity. Like that's really become a huge issue. So clearly that's important from what you've just said for you as an organisation. But I mean, how do you, I guess the question is like how, well, how difficult has it been to get to a point where you can put on 50% gender diversity, which is I take it what you meant when you said that. Like how problematic was it in terms of sort of balancing the needs to sell tickets and the needs for greater diversity online? Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, um, I don't think it was in terms of the. It really just took learning why it needs to be, why it needs to align with our values and and how when we first started out and um, educating ourselves on that. I don't think it 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 wasn't necessarily difficult once you understood it and you were mentally invested in it and you decided right, this is what we're prioritizing. We would like more gender diversity, more cultural diversity. We want a very good representation of First Nation artists on every lineup that we do. And it's just stuff like that and educating ourselves that brought us into the space of making it a lot more. It's it's just, it's not even a question or a challenge anymore. It's, it's more, it's more, you know, the challenge was really faced at the process of being like, hang on a second, we should be doing more in this space. We, we should be booking more females. We should be booking. It's kind of once you, you as a team, as a collective, and you really need everyone to buy in. You can't really do it if you've got, I mean, you can do it, but it just, it works a lot more. It's a lot more cohesive and it's, it's with the right intention as well when your whole team is behind it, which is something that's been really exciting for us, um, especially over the last few years, really working together as a group to, to improve and do more um, and we always feel that we can do more in that space especially diversifying our programming not just our programming but our staffing internally contractors at our events um yeah with- i was going to ask you about that actually because i mean one thing we talk about on the show quite a lot is the degree to which like the back end of the music industry is quite mono well it's quite dominated by white blokes basically <laughs> i was gonna say white cultural but i mean let's just call it what it is right i mean as a touring artist you almost always play for a promoter who's a white guy right i mean that's just a big generalization but one it's just you know pretty fair right and not just promoters i mean it's the whole the whole of the back end and not just in in the live space in the recording space and and all the rest of it so that's something that you guys take seriously too is it it's um the expansion of that back end as well as just the forward facing artist lineups. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of white males in the industry and it is, you know, especially in senior positions, but that mold is slowly breaking more and more. I feel, especially behind the scenes um, with, um, you know, you've got artists and then you've got artist teams, you've got promoters, venues, publicists, people in our ops team, um, every facet of the industry and that's something which I feel like is slowly changing more and more and that's I feel like that's really positive change there is a lot of work to be done a lot of changes to be made but I do feel it is heading in the right direction at least locally here in Australia which I can speak on my knowledge for the UK and Europe is a little bit better than that of other territories like North America but I do know it has been an area of focus with a lot of promoters, agents, um, 
managers, publicists and stuff that I work with and record labels and stuff from over um, in Europe and the UK. And I, um, it's definitely, it's something which we are trying to champion work um, in terms of encouraging others within this space, not just that we work, whether it's from a contractor position or diversity on our lineups um, or consultants that we work with, trying to diversify how uh, both on a cultural and, um, you know, in many ways in each of those um, areas, who we work with and um, and what background and, and um, you know, they haven't um, really trying to encourage others in the space or in the industry in Australia to do the exact same. And I think there are really good initiatives here in Australia, independent initiatives. There's one in particular called WIP, which a good friend of mine, Sarah Morgan, is, um, you know, she uh, she basically started it, got it off the ground, works with a really, um, you know, strong team of, of music industry personnel to to run WIP. And it is its sole purpose and reason is to diversify music in Australia. And it's, it's basically a platform where you can learn more about women in the industry. You can um, – they have – a database and um, a very like a user very easy in terms of user experience and uh, for promoters to be able to just go on the platform and just find more female artists find first nation artists read about them listen to their music see um, what other people have to say about their music and it's always been uh that's always been a really really helpful tool for promoters in australia and I'd recommend anyone globally who's looking to, I guess, book artists, you know, whether you're in Australia or outside of Australia, to to check out WIP Project. But, yeah, it's stuff like that which has been a really useful tool for promoters like us to understand where we should be improving and how we can and make a really user-friendly platform for us to be able to, to grow in that space. So, yeah. Yeah, sure. Let me ask you, how much of the incentive to take those steps came directly from the audience and how much was a kind of more general kind of industry swing towards making those kind of priorities? It's hard to, it's hard to put a percentage on that, but it was both. It was, it was definitely a strong, strong push from both. But I do feel for us internally, there was a lot of people at our company that were trying to educate others at our company at, at the same time while there was this really positive shift, you know, culturally in the music industry here to be better at this all at the same time. And it created this this moment where if you weren't acting on it, if you weren't putting in the effort to actually do your research as to why, grow in this space and action it, then you were somewhat left behind and, you know, people people just wouldn't stand for it anymore. You kind of didn't have an excuse um, with just how many resources, tools, or even just just looking at what other people are doing. I mean, it's, you know, I remember there was one promoter that asked for my feedback on it, which I think is like really positive. If you just come out and say, hey, I'm not doing enough in this space, how do I improve? And I just remember suggesting to look on our lineup, look on from a, um, a previous festival that we had announced where we had a really well-balanced 
line up in certain in terms of gender and cultural diversity and a few other a few other questions were asked in terms of more live artists and all this stuff and I just said look look at our lineups and just literally Google each artist's name and um, if you ever um, you know wanted to look further into it and you can do that with pretty much any festival I think there's just there's no excuses anymore but in terms of understanding why you should be doing it you really need to speak with people you need to speak with you know women in the industry that haven't been given the same opportunities as men you need to be speaking with first nation artists and first people of australia to to understand why they should be well represented and booked at the start of your lineup programming process rather than at the end when you're you know at the same time you're booking your lineup your headliners you need to be booking first nation artists that is just absolutely you know, non-negotiable. And that's something that a lot of promoters here in Australia are now doing, which is really, really exciting. And it's long overdue. It's, um, yeah, it's very long overdue. Okay. So a related question would be that just kind of popped into my head as you were saying all that. Well, I, I, is this fair or not, basically? Is the criticism of festival lineups being lazy a fair assessment of them? I mean, there is a kind of almost a meme at this point of the same acts being booked for festivals year after year. And this is a, it's a criticism which is, is pretty wide, right? So responds to that if, if you can. I mean, I, I don't know how I feel about it, really. I mean, I think like maybe with the very top line headliners, maybe it's a fair comment. But, but tell me what you think. Look, I think lazy is a very it's a very raw word. You know, it's very, yeah, that's a harsh it, way of putting it. But, it, right? but, but <laughs> I do, I, I have to say, I do agree with it. To to a, a, everything circumstantial, I do agree with it to a point. I think there's, um, but generally speaking, I would say yes. I think if promoters and venues, you know, th- there is that kind of cliche of you know, you know, it's the same lineup across all of these festivals, but it's just about getting creative with, you know, how is, how is your lineup different and how is your event different in terms of the actual brand identity, the way that you're marketing it, where it is and everything else as well, which plays a role in what the overall event identity is as a festival property. But I, I feel that if festivals or venues are in a position where it's, you know, majority or, you know, absolute worst case, all white males, um, then yeah, there's definitely an element of laziness there for sure. I think it does take time to educate yourself. Just like you look at, I would always say that promoters, people that work in touring or bookings, you know, they effectively are, it's like they work as an A&R at a record label. They're constantly trying to find new artists. And if you're not actively trying to find new artists, which broaden your cultural and gender diversity on your lineups at the same time as you're trying to discover talent that, that you're looking for a certain musical direction or for marketing leverage um, because you're looking for the next big artist, the next Fred again or whoever it is. It's kind of like it, it needs to be considered in your process. And I've, if you there is an element of, I would say, just an element of, of responsibility for everyone now, even the independents, to, to put the, you know, an equal amount of effort into the homework they do on those artists as they do for artists to diversify their lineups for the people, the marginalized communities that haven't been given those opportunities. Yeah. Okay. So just to follow that up then, I think there is a tendency, I mean, actually the A&R comparisons are a really good one. 
and like taking the responsibility to i guess broaden your horizons as much as possible i think is is really important and probably something which is underappreciated <clears throat> with regards to i think event booking generally but i think particularly with festivals where you've got um where you're booking a large number of acts for each one and there is a potential for you know having casting the net quite wide there i mean i think with i think the danger sometimes with the diversity aspect is it becomes a sort of box ticking exercise and a small number of artists that fit those criteria just become part of that sort of repeat booking cycle so it's like the promoters oh we've got we've got a fill this expectation of the audience by ticking these boxes and then it just becomes the same the obvious names repeat again and again right so is that a fair criticism do you think Generally. Yeah, totally. No, I think it's look. It's a it's a fair challenge. It definitely is a fair challenge trying to get outside of the artists that are being booked. And also, I think the biggest thing which which you know it does play a role in the challenge is I guess not doing it for the right reasons rather than looking too much at what is the easiest option um, and really trying to find yourself or I guess with the small lineups where there's fewer artists. It can definitely be just in terms of booking a lineup that's different in general, whether it's your headliners or for diversity reasons, you are going to be faced with a bigger challenge because you've got less less available performance times. Um, but I think generally speaking, I would still say that, you know, with the even knowing that that is a challenge which a lot of promoters face, you know, booking the same lineups or the artists, you know, it is really important that, just through the process of of starting to for promoters and venues who are looking to diversify their lineups, it's important that they educate themselves at the same time as to the reasons why, so it doesn't become tokenism and when tokenistic. And when that has a, when when that happens, um, I think that's when it can become a little bit too systematic. And through that process of it being um, just a little bit too. Copy paste, copy paste, copy paste. It just that's that's how you get in that predicament. But it does take effort and time to find and build lineups that are different to the other ones, irrespective of the debate of diversity. Uh, you know, it's generally speaking, everyone does a lot of the time go for the same lineups and the same artists, um, whether it's the headliners or you know, the the buzz artists that are having a, a real moment. So I think that's where the effort element will always come into it. And yeah, like I said, I would I would say the word lazy is a bit it's a bit of a tough one, but I think looking at it from on the other end, I would say if you put in the right amount of effort into educating yourself and and actioning those changes and trying to make it yes, there's an extra layer of complexity to making sure that your lineup is diverse or different while not booking the same artists, sorry, diverse and different at the same time. So you're not booking the same artists that are playing on or the same lineups as a whole that you've seen on a bunch of other festivals or venue club night lineups, but you're still making sure that you're fulfilling your obligation as a promoter or a venue to to be eclectic and to be diverse, um, then there's, you know, there's no reason why, why it can't be achieved 
Yep. You know? Yeah, okay. So, okay, let's go back to your two main festivals. So how have you developed them over time? I mean, they've, they've progressively got bigger in terms of tickets, but how have you sort of managed that expansion with keeping an eye on, you know, clearly like the experiential aspect is, is key for you guys. So how have you managed the expansion versus like keeping hold of those kind of attention to the detail aspects? Expansions are obviously been a big one because with that comes additional resourcing and more expertise and stuff and also more more demand, not just from the public, but in terms of artists that want to play at the festivals. Um, I think a big big change for us for pitch is, you know, over time we've slowly started to introduce more we've we've been working really hard to make the lineup keeping its, you know, its electronic roots while making it looking at artists like DJs, Edge, Yoti, um, Moderat, Fatimi, Yamaha, a lot of artists in the live space like Mild Life, you know, and a whole range of um, other DJs that just, you know, won't play, I guess, techno for lack of a better word, like your Nightmares on Wax or um, Bradley Zero. Bradley is obviously quite quite eclectic in the, the, the range of music that he he brings to the shows that he plays, but um, I guess making it more in terms of the musical offering, just having more, you know, between the three stages. I think this year we're about to turn in a big uh, next chapter, having Moderat play at the festival because it is, they do appeal to um, an older demographic, generally speaking here locally, but for us at pitch, we have always had, you know, a lot of the people that attend the festival over the age of 25, whereas, um, or even 30, over the age of 30, whereas a lot of festivals that take place across, you know, multiple days out in the bush or even in, just in regional Victoria because it's such a an effort to go camping and stuff, you do find it's, you know, a lot of the time 21 to 25-year-olds. And that's festivals like Meredith Music Festival, Golden Plains um, and stuff have been pretty much industry leaders at at continuing a it's almost like this cult following of just people that go every single year, no matter how old they're they're becoming. But for pitch, we have traditionally been relatively successful at that at upholding an older demographic. So Moderat does stick to what we have previously tried to try to in terms of the trajectory the brand identity and the audience that we are generally trying to appeal to for pitch as well as from a production element, they're coming with quite an extensive, you know, they're coming with a big show, the, the back line, the whole, it'll be the first time that we have a stage with a lead screen. So we're getting really creative for that and ways to, with local designers like studio John fish and, um, one of my, um, uh, yeah, one of my team members, um, Adrian Bell, who has been working with their team, the stage designers, technical production, everything to try and make, you know, your traditional 16.9 LED screen that sits behind a band not look like, not turn pitch into a traditional festival model from a production element because it has really been quite unique and different in the uh, creative and production offerings that, it provides for its audience. So that will be that will be new for pitch. That'll be big. The stages are a lot bigger this year. The actual, you know, the main stage, which is being designed by 
Henry House and Ambrose Sakharakis. They it's um, it's gone through I think four different um, conceptual variations just because of like making sure that we find something with structural integrity that also ticks off the old uh, you know is it in the budget line item question, but that is we're continuing in the brutalist architecture inspired direction uh, but growing from it and going bigger there's more art than there ever has been before um the attendance is slightly higher um the lineup which monty mcgore who works with our team has booked is very very big you know we've got everyone from fortet helena hoff um hector oaks fiak seafrim mildlife there's just on the international aspects there's so i could I could just go on for, you know, there's just, there's literally, I forget how many artists are playing on this year's lineup. It's crazy. But the, that's grown quite a lot. It's a bigger lineup, bigger stages, bigger everything. So it'll be, um, but it's still very true to its initial boutique blueprint and nature. Like the stages are all in the same locations. The footprint is the exact same. The like attendees, it's slightly bigger but it's just it's not enough to justify you know calling it a, cap- a capacity increase almost um so it's it's very much the same festival and i think that is the trajectory that pitch will go in which kind of sounds counterintuitive is it's not it's while all these elements are increasing everything is still as it was it's in the same location it's in you know aside from moving around a few art installations and stuff it will feel like the same festival and landscape as people arrive to set up their tent um with beyond the valley that is a whole different story for we we started a um we moved into a new site basically the new year's eve that just passed and we started uh, festivals in brisbane perth and adelaide to help bolster the touring run obviously for artists come to australia to be able to justify it they need to play you know three four five six shows while they're here Otherwise, it's just not worth their time. But also, from a programming uh, perspective, stepping more into, uh, you know, we've traditionally had, you know, Rufus DeSoul, Tyler the Creator, um, Chance the Rapper, Little Dragon, a whole range of artists. But this year, looking more in the space of nostalgia and um, artists, like artists that are in the pop space, and we we did an Australian exclusive booking with Nelly Furtado to play on the Beyond the Valley main stage in light of the um, moment that was kind of surfacing online with um, a lot of the TikTok stuff, the mashup with the bicep glue song and um, all the remixes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me stop you there because you mentioned that in our email exchange before this. So tell me a little bit more about that whole thing yeah so that that was that was kind of we we were yeah we were sitting around just thinking of ways to kind of make our headline offering for beyond the valley different and i guess you know there's artists like nelly Furtado. they are quite traditionally they're relatively unattainable because who they work with from a when you look at how big these agents are and these managers and stuff they they work with the likes of you know beyonce and Green Day and Katy Perry and, um, you know, the, the biggest stars in the world. And we were we were quite lucky. We went on a trip to 
to Europe recently for Sonar and while we were there, we spent some time in London and I was, um, yeah, really interested to meet up with her agent while I was over there. And as you can imagine, someone with a roster, which is, which has some of the biggest pop stars in the world can be, um, can be challenging to, to get in a room with just purely from how busy they are. And had this really um, great moment where they responded to our email and they were like, you know, she'd love to meet you. It was a bit of a, a waiting game towards the end just because, you know, you do need a, for us being an Australian independent promoter and just being new to meeting um, certain agents in the industry, sometimes you really quite, you quite literally need to wait to meet some of the biggest agents in the world um, in a waiting room until, you know, they're, they're ready and um the you know i went through that whole process sat down with her and she was absolutely lovely and we spoke about a bunch of other artists that we wanted to work with um in australia and we were working we're waiting for a few other offers to expire before we kind of submitted the formal financial offer for nelly Furtado. but we got back to australia after you know i had a one-on-one with her in person and she said yep you know could work. We'll see. It's been five years since she's performed on a stage. It's an exciting thought, but we're not too sure whether she'd be interested or not. And basically all the offers that were outstanding had eventually expired and we had four days and no headliners. And we were just like, well, we were talking about Nelly Furtado a month ago. Do we go down this path with four days left until we need to announce? And so I reached (laughs) out to the agent and I was like, Hey, it's me again, <laughs> the guy that we met um, in London, <laughs> you know, and we, we had a good chat and she was just like, look, I, let's do what we can. Let's see, let's see if it comes through. But with four days to go, it's, it's, you know, it's highly unlikely. And with a bit of luck, 70 emails, some waiting up until two to 3am for the time difference. Cause there's obviously management was in Toronto, which is where Nelly's from. And then, the agent in London and then Melbourne being the worst time difference out of everyone. You know, it's quite easy for North America and UK to kind of go back and forth over this, this short window. But with Melbourne, the window is literally it's late at night here. Um, I mean, I'm doing this conversation with you at um, 7.43 PM here and you've just woken up. So it's, (laughs) you know, the conversations, especially between um, Melbourne and London are always, quite literally what keep keeps me up at night late um, sometimes. But this was just four days of just back and forth, back and forth. Logistically, can we make it work? You know, her touring team, her schedule from the agent to management to Nelly herself, back and forth. And their whole team was just so accommodating and, and they worked so fast. And we put together a big proposal of, you know, what we felt would be a really exciting moment. And it was – I think like midnight the night before we announced and I was just waiting up for the final word and then I just received this email. I'll never forget it. It was one word. It said yes. And then it just like did this blast out to our whole team. And I think there was a dartboard of my face in the office the next day because marketing, PR, ticketing, customer service, all these departments just had to update everything to have, you know, her name on the top. They absolutely loved it. Well, at least it's adding something rather than taking it off, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that was – we. there was also one other artist that we had to take off. So there was one of my colleagues um, 
also had a dartboard up there. But it was it was funny. We got through the day and then everyone was just like the response was it was insane. It was absolutely massive. We were the most talked about festival in Australia for a, for a minute there on that day. And it was just such a special moment for our whole office. The dartboard got taken down and we all went to the pub and um, it was, um, yeah, it was great. And then for, and that was, that was right in the peak moment where festivals just were not selling tickets. You know, we had, there was festivals with lineups double or triple the amount of the budget of what we had for this year, for last year's Beyond the Valley. And that's purely because we got told no so many times because there were so many artists that were either already doing arena tours here or they already had plans in North America or London or we were late or whatever it was. And we were just not by choice, but we just missed out on a lot. And to end up with a lineup that we had, which was so strong in the end with Kate Trinata, Bicep, Honey Dijon, Denzel Curry, um, you know, and then having someone like Nelly Furtado on the top was um, was just, yeah, everyone was talking about it. And the weekend after we sold, uh, sorry, the week after we went on sale and we sold, I think it was 15,000 tickets in the first day. And we're like, all right, we're looking at a sellout this year. It's, and those numbers for August last year when we announced the festival and went on sale were like, for our other events, we were not seeing an uptake of roughly 50% of the whole festival capacity in that first day, just generally speaking. Like we were seeing that in the last week if we were lucky, if we were really, really lucky for festivals around that time last year. But that was a very stressful experience cutting it down to the wire. So um, I can very confidently share our headliner for Beyond the Valley is already confirmed <laughs> right, okay. in February yeah. this year, which is which is very comforting. <laughs> okay, this has been great, man. Thanks so much, Dean. I just got one or two more quick ones. So you were talking about the expansion of of pitch. Like, is there an upper limit? Do you think to what a festival should be in terms of the attendance? Like, is is there a point at which it becomes too much? Do you think? Yes, I think pitch is pretty much at that limit. And it'll stay there. Um, and we will look to do more interstate. There are markets like Sydney and stuff, which are more just smaller one day, you know, just, I guess, spin-off festivals while we have so many artists in the country at this time. Pitch is very precious in that sense. It, it's like the people that come to it every year, will they'll start to turn on us if we sell too many tickets. And we don't, we also, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. It has a special place in our hearts of being this really unique festival in Australia. Beyond the Valley, I think, um, and Wildlands in return because they're bundled into the same, you know, in terms of the festival properties that we own over the New Year's run. It really depends on the values of the festival and how you're programming it and the audience and stuff. We do things like commercial partnerships at Beyond the Valley. We do work with, um, you know, a lot in the activation space. It's got a lot of exciting bespoke features to it stage designs you know things like you won't see a logo on a stage of beyond the valley you won't see it's still very true to i guess our values as a company when it comes to its brand integrity and the way that we approach that we approach that but we do want it to continue to grow and we've invested a lot into the new side to watch it grow and it is you know it's one of those festivals where we we are asking yes there is a limit but I guess it's determining what that is right now. We don't know what the answer is to that. We don't know whether it's – we do want it to be Australia's um, most impactful festival 
on a cultural and social level and in terms of economic impact for regional Victoria, we do want it to have a high income for the um, regional towns and the, um, the Western District of Victoria, which benefits from the festival taking place where it takes place. But, you know, we are talking about numbers of one day, whether it takes four years, five years, 10 years, will be on the Valley be 50,000 people, will it be 60,000 people? You know, for pitch, it's, it's at its ceiling and we're going to leave it there now. Um, and we're quite comfortable with that. And um, I think the audience will be really comfortable with that and appreciate it. That's, it's kind of, and we, we found, you know, we've, we've made ourselves content with that, which I think can be really hard for promoters and companies like us that are currently under a moment of growth. And there's a, there's a certain sentiment of excitement around that, that it's really important that I think businesses in general try and constantly have their list of checks and balances to make sure that they don't grow too fast and they don't reach a point that is unmanageable. So for us, it's there's kind of this synergy between that sentiment and the actual capacity of our festivals. And you can feel that when you attend the events sometimes as a general punter. But there's a lot more that we do around the year that we're focusing our energy towards, like Grapevine, which is a six to seven show touring festival that happens strictly in wineries over the October period. Um, for the love, which is taking place in a week, you know, with Charlie XCX, um, Duke Jamont and a range of other artists. Um, then we've got, uh, we do a lot of warehouse shows. We have a weekly club night um, and we're looking for other, you know, vertical integrations that we can incorporate into our festivals, um, such as, you know, looking at, looking at our budgets and being like, okay, well, we don't want to increase our capacity at our festivals. What other income opportunities can we look at? And um, I guess that align with our values. And we, not to go on a side note for, for, for other reasons, but we actually just launched the world's first completely sustainable vodka company called Ugly Vodka, which is um, made purely out of ugly apples. So stuff like that where that's that's a vertical that we integrate into our festivals and just roll them out across, roll it out across all the bars and for us, when stepping into that discussion, it is a space where we don't, we are very considerate of, I guess, where other promoters have done it in a 360 degree model. And we don't, you know, that, that doesn't excite us too much. You know, each company is very different and unique. And for us, if we can find a reason behind the, the why and the value behind it, like we have with Ugly Vodka, using apples that would otherwise go to waste benefiting Australian farmers, being the world's first sustainable vodka product. It's it's kind of like, okay, that as an idea for us is really exciting. We would like to pursue that and that works because, you know, we'll sell it over the bars at our festivals as well from a as a vertical integration point of view. So that's the expansion areas that we are really trying to unpack at the moment rather than just being like capacity, 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 you know, that not every – solution to that discussion is to sell more tickets sure so yeah 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 absolutely i mean you can grow the business without yeah as you said growing the capacity of individual events absolutely so yeah last question um the live space generally has been well a feature of it has been consolidation right and as you said that you're the you know the biggest independent running these kinds of things in australia so presumably at some point if you guys continue to grow at the clip you have been you will likely become a target. I mean, how 
important for you as an organization is the independent aspect and to what extent do you sort of define yourselves as being against those big corporations um i wouldn't say we're we're definitely not against the big corporations i think especially in australia they they kind of naturally turn into their own australian companies in terms of the ones that have entered the space and have it's kind of like i don't know it's similar to i guess the way i'd imagine it operating in um other markets with smaller popular population density compared to you know what markets like uk europe north america and stuff would have but we we are very motivated by our independence we um are very proud of being australia's largest independent we do approach that from an objective standpoint as well when there's a little uh there's a there's the um the poll star results which we always refer to when um bringing that up but um that was quite a surreal moment seeing that last year and seeing us behind teg as australia's second largest promoter obviously teg is a global um but we've got great relationships with a lot of these companies we we share talent sometimes i think the the way that they operate in australia is very understanding of the independent promoter model and there's a lot of there's a lot of sharing and there's a lot of like there's a lot of companies based in australia who are independents, but they work with and plug into those bigger companies, um, those bigger globals, where it works for both parties. I mean, at the end of the day, if nobody's making money, then you know those partnerships just don't work. But for us, we just generally speaking, we like we do like empowering other independents. We work a lot with companies like Astral People, um, What Artists, Crown Ruler. Um, there's a whole range of yeah, even smaller promoters that we we want to w- work more and more with, um, like um, you know promoters like Neurotic Erotic and um, the Need to Freak guys in Queensland and stuff. There's just the the the, the independent space for promoters, venues, clubs, even just operators in Australia. You know, people that work off of a, a laptop and have just a desk drawer which is just full of like notes and you know they're daily planners but they they run parties um smaller promoters like finding figaro all these promoters that i'm mentioning are really really exciting ones that anyone looking in the australian space should look at but we um we generally love working with um and empowering other independents and um working with each other and selling each other artists when we're working as sub agents JVing on certain parties and shows. It's a very honest and open dialogue in Australia as well. It's a very loyal um, between the other independents and us. I feel where it's it's kind of like when you're looking at something new. Sometimes it's the conversation of or looking at an artist that hasn't entered Australia before. It's almost this unspoken thing of like, all right, like everyone. It's kind of everyone just put their best foot forward. Whoever gets it gets it. Um, and then after that, it's 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 nice for the for the most part where it makes sense that conversation. You will go back through that sub agent or third party agent or promoter that did it with that that promoted that artist the first time or the second time, you know. Um, and even with the companies in the electronic space that are also independent, have been working for a long time, like Novel and Thicker Sieves and Hardware. I mean, there's there's so much that they have done to create the culture of electronic music in Australia for promoters like us to continue to 
uh, be empowered by and work with um, and leverage in collaboration with them. So, I mean, that's a bit of an insight into the independent model in Australia at the moment. Yeah, and yeah, just totally. How it kind of how it operates. So, yeah. Okay, last last one. Just give me a few really memorable sets from your festivals over the years. That is a great one. First year of Beyond the Valley, um, we even knowing our production and our um, stage creative was really um, over the top. We managed to um, make a whole ton of mistakes, which included. Um, and they might they might grill me for saying this on this, but um, we. We were running so late on the changeovers. We ended up, Rufus were um, now known as Rufus to Soul, were doing, back then they were known as Rufus when they did the countdown. And um, because we were running so behind, they ended up starting late and it went. <laughs> Tyrone, the lead singer, after five minutes was like, well, look like we missed the countdown, aka we had just done it without, <laughs> without them. But as a performance, that was the like, Back then, that was the best performance I'd ever seen up until that point. It was like, yeah, so first year, Beyond the Valley, Rufus, late countdown, but absolutely incredible. It was the first world-class show we had hosted uh, between, you know, a festival and an artist that paired so well. Um, second year pitch, Marcel Detman closing the main stage um, was pure chaos and euphoria all in one. The... Dennis Salter's closing set at Pitch on the Monday, one that people will be talking about for a long, long, long time. Most recently, probably the, I feel a bit, um, just trying to think of some other ones. There's been like, yeah, there's been so many big moments. Mount Kimby at Pitch, Little Dragon at Beyond the Valley were amazing. Um, Lady Hawk, the Veronicas, Kian, who's a local artist um, at Beyond the Valley this year. She was absolutely amazing with her band. My favorite performance that I have ever seen at one of our events. Oh, actually, sorry, I'll go back to another one. Solomon, when we had him at the warehouse and then had him play at our club XC54 and then at my mate's house on an ironing board for 10 hours <laughs> after that, the next day. That was that was up there. The 10-hour set in particular, playing off of two booth monitors with 200 people squeezed into this t- tiny living room. That was something else. But um, the most recent Beyond the Valley, Nelly Furtado was absolutely amazing. Coming after Kate Renata as well, he was just flawless. But Dom Dollar at the Beyond the Valley that just passed was to, was probably my favourite performance I've seen at any one of our concerts um, in terms of the visual aspects, the journey that he took the crowd on, on what was meant to be 90 minutes, but then we had a conversation with management and stuff earlier that day saying hey we've got an extra 30 minutes let's do it let's use it so it was just two hours of you know dom's played the festival every single year and it was watching one of my closest friends and i'm not just saying this because he's one of my closest friends but watching him close the festival to that many people on the new site on that sound system with that lighting rig during the new year's eve countdown was um yeah it was incredible that was probably my favorite untitled moment to date so yeah awesome nice one man well listen yeah thanks so much for your time it's been great thank you yeah awesome uh, it was um it was really nice to meet paul appreciate it that was phil palermo really great to be able to dig into some stuff that we haven't covered at all on the show so far i mean getting so much info on how the market works in australia was super super interesting super useful 
super eye-opening. I think, you know, there's a tendency to focus on wherever market or whatever territory you come from. But it's important to note that everywhere works a little bit differently, you know, and it's not all the same. And if you want to build a career for yourself in music over time, then you've really got to be looking out for those details and taking all that kind of stuff into consideration when you're building a, a career for yourself, a life for yourself, a business for yourself. So yeah, it was great to have Phil on, great to get his take on so many different issues. It was really interesting to discuss the diversity stuff with him, which is a issue which always comes up behind closed doors and isn't really discussed in an honest way that often out in public. So it was great to get some some really good dirt under the fingernail stuff on that side of things with him. Really good to get his honest take on all of that stuff. And it sounds like they're doing really, really positive work, but doing it in a thoughtful way and not just ticking the boxes, which is so often, unfortunately, the uh, the approach of that sort of thing. So yeah, they're doing great work. I can't wait to visit one of their festivals. Hopefully we'll be doing so in the next year or two. And yeah, just awesome, awesome stuff. Okay, as I mentioned at the top, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There are bonus podcasts that go up. There is the remix project thing that I did a bad job explaining at the top of the show. Uh, that's going to be fun going forward. There's a different one every four weeks. There will be anyway. Not a remix of anything. I'm just knocking up stems and sticking them up and then, you know, we can get stuck into them. Yeah, I mean, that was something that we talked about on the Discord and it was a, a popular suggestion. So that's why we're doing that. But if you want, if you just want the stems, then, you know, whatever. It's pretty reasonable, the lower tier of Patreon, to get access to that. So yeah, patreon.com slash scuba official. You will also get the hot flush promo list access, or rather just the stuff that goes up on the hot flush promo list will goes up on Patreon as well about the same time. That's the higher tier, that's the musicality tier, which is a little bit more expensive, but still, you know, very reasonably priced, I think, considering all the stuff you get with it. So yeah, do that if you haven't done so already. But if you can't, you can't afford it, whatever, don't want to, that's also cool. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. That is also much appreciated. If you're enjoying what we're doing here, then either of those two things would be great. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that, containing all the music or much of the music that we talk about on the show. And yeah, join that Discord server, which I already mentioned. Hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord is the invite to get into that. So yeah, thanks for listening. This has been a great episode. I really enjoyed it. And I'll check you same time, same place next week on the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Let's go, cool, wow.